millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Film Chats, a podcast all about a romantically hopeless guy called Sam Foster who is unable to connect with women due to the fact that he never got over his first crush from primary school, the beautiful Danny Moran. Sam decides that the only thing to do is to woo Danny, and so he returns to his hometown where, luckily, Danny still resides. There, Sam is delighted to discover that Danny is still single, but there is a reason. Danny is still best friends with June, the short, unattractive brunette girl who Sam also knew from primary school. Sam reintroduces himself to Danny, and they hit it off. However, Danny refuses to go on a date with Sam unless June has a date as well. Sam sets out to find a boyfriend for June, but men recall at the sight of her. One day, at the Santa Monica Pier, Johan Woolrich, an attractive dentist who works as a part-time model, appears in their lives. He wants to do a makeover on June when he apparently sees her inner beauty. However, Sam believes that Johan is a threat to his shot with Danny. Is what I would be saying. If this was a adaptation of the 2008 film The Hottie and the Naughty, which is in no way offensive and is actually very uh, empowering. Uh, this is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is a man whose inner beauty is only rivaled by his outer beauty. <laughs> Sam Foster. Thanks. Um, it's a bit of a frantic time at the moment, well, with the general election coming to a head. My nerves are basically shot. I'm finding it quite hard to perform even basic tasks with all my fingers and toes crossed the entire time. So it's a perfect time for Film Chat to review a pair of films that, while they deal with some serious stuff, are, on the whole, rather relaxing. Danny will be reviewing the Japanese family drama After the Storm, in which a washed-up private detective tries to reconnect with his family and at no point contemplates voting for the Tories. Then we'll both be taking a look at the French animation My Life as a Courgette, all about a group of kids at an orphanage bonding with each other and drawing adorable little pictures of Jeremy Corbyn and saying how you should vote for Jeremy Corbyn. It's a big part of the movie. We also discuss a mooted Matthew McConaughey film that would see him play a beach bum. Strange role for him. Don't really see it, to be honest. Uh, some new thing that's going to make lots of money called The Dark Universe. And the prospects for the Jurassic Park movies, now that the sexy chaos maths man Jeff Goldblum is returning. All that should leave just enough time for me to spend 45 minutes grilling Danny with the forensic incisiveness of master interviewer Jeremy Paxman. It's going to be a bit like this. Um, uh, uh, first of all, you look stupid. You claim to be a woke podcaster, and yet there is no woman on this podcast. Uh, do you hate all women? No, or, no. uh, just the ones you know personally? And how much do you hate them, yes or no? It's a simple question. Uh, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I I I'm getting increasingly old. Uh, all right, let's move on. All right, were you born an idiot? 
Or or have you become uh, one over over time? Did you have to learn to be so fucking stupid? I'm growing old. I'm getting old and irrelevant. All right, thought so, no answer. That's going to be what it's like. We don't have any correspondence again this week. Everyone's too busy um, watching uh, the election unfold and stuff, I'm sure, to get in touch with us. Salazar's Revenge. It's fine. And they're watching Salazar's Revenge, and no one has anything to say about it. But that's fine. We've been amusing ourselves in other ways. Danny and I and a couple of our close friends, Dougal and Dan, uh, got together and we had a Roger Moore watching evening. We watched a couple of classic Roger Moore movies. And it was an interesting experience for me because I've never seen a lot of these classic Bond movies. And I hadn't seen either of the ones we've watched. Whereas, Danny, you grew up and you watched them as a kid and you got, you know, yeah, this like my childhood. Just ran it as a nightlight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You couldn't sleep without um, seeing a, um, doing a shag or uh, doing, doing a murder. <laughs> doing a murder or a shag. Or a shag. Uh, so, we, so it was kind of interesting because we came at it from different perspectives. And I. I sort of enjoyed them, but it it was quite striking how bad they were. We, wa- <laughs> we watched um, we watched the Spy Who Loved Me, and then we watched Moonraker, which are like the same film basically. But in one, one he goes underwater; the other one he goes to space. Yeah. But other than that, they're like beat for beat, like identical, which is a bit of made for um, weird. I guess back in the days before you can go and replay them on YouTube, people just forget. I don't know, like yeah, yeah, that's exactly the same movie. Yeah. But so what did you what did you make of rewatching them again given that you you know seen a lot of them in your childhood? Yeah, the thing that struck me was I was ready for just the incredibly dated values and like cheesiness, but the actual pacing is really off. I don't know if it's the 70s, like I think they just blew all the budget on these sets. They built this submarine base. It's like we have to be here. We're going to be here for a while. For like 45 minutes. Yeah. And uh, that really stuck out as like, who's, didn't someone realize that it's got really boring for like a good 20 minutes there? Well, it, f- it feels very like pedestrian in the way in, in that it's just kind of plods along the next thing, the next thing. Like, there's nothing the, in terms of like the emotional engagement in the movie. It never gets, you know, above a seven. It, like it feels like a movie that's been made for a formula and the audience isn't even expected to react that much. <laughs> like whether something exciting is happening or they're just talking or he's like having sex. It's all kind of the same. Like, all of his seductions are very perfunctory. Yeah. It's just by virtue of being that character that women want to sleep with him. And now we'll have sex. And now we'll have sex. There was an amazing moment in The Spy Who Loved Me where uh, he's in Egypt and he goes to see some guy for some reason. Uh, and the guy's out, so he speaks to just, like, this beautiful woman who's there. And he's asking her where the dude is and she won't tell him. And she's obviously, like, a sort of decoy. And she's meant to sort of seduce him, which she kind of does. And there's a guy hiding in the room ready to kill Bond. And then she uh, is so overwhelmed by the power of his, like, sexual charisma, his panther-like, um, you know, sexual aura, 
that she then throws herself in front of the bullet meant for him and dies. She's like, ah, no! And then just, like, she dies and he lives. So well, what's going on there? I think maybe just even despite over seven films, they never captured how attractive Roger Moore is. Just you get close to him and you're like, Ooh. What kind of cologne is he wearing, you know? It must be pretty strong stuff. I think it's just his natural pheromones. Just it's those, like, yes, I'll more... help you kill this man. Five seconds later, I will die for him. He's my love. Yeah. That's the power of Moore. I um, I enjoyed Moonraker more. It's it's stupider, which it's I think is stupider, a good thing. And it's got better. All the bits, it's the same film, basically, but all the little bits are better. Like the Bond girls can act better. The one in the, uh, the Bond girl and the spy love me is like strikingly Barbara terrible Bark. yeah um, this is ringo star right yeah Ring, ringo stars she can't, she, can't act. she can't really act which is very strange like i don't really understand why that is but uh yeah but the 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 ones in um moonraker are much better um and it's got a much better villain the guy who looks exactly like sebastian gorka uh he's Michael lonsdale he's fantastic i think the thing that was so good about him is that there's not a flicker of cheese to his performance in a way. All his lines are utterly ridiculous. And he says things like, see that some harm comes to him. Uh, when talking about Bond. But he's like, plays it absolutely straight. There's yeah, not, yeah, it's brilliant. not camp at all. It's not like a sort of camp, I know I'm playing a villain, excessive performance. And I think he just does a great, and, like, dramatic And he has turn. the stupidest plot of any Bond villain. His he's, plot is absolutely he's bonkers. Space, destroy the Earth, and then move back to Earth and, like, set up his own... Aryan colony of like to be honest, it's not that different to Kingsman yeah but uh but well, postmodern well Kingsman is like a postmodern Bond movie but isn't it's it it's kind of not yeah it's not because it's, it's just it's just a the strong same. stable Bond movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah satire yeah um yeah so I don't know like it's not that far off being a comedy mm. but it's not quite one and it's this odd tone of you're not supposed to take it seriously but it's also not a joke yeah, I, you always question how, like, is the culture really reflecting the times? Like, do people find it as ridiculous then as they do now? Or whether, you know what I mean? Like, obviously the sexism and stuff. They, like probably, mu- they probably wouldn't have balked at the way that a modern audience does. Yeah, or maybe less so. But uh, was it just like, was Moonraker just like laughed out of the cinema for being too stupid? It just- feels like the sort of thing that it, you watch it because it's on and it's the next Bond. And... I can't imagine that people felt that strongly about it. You would just go. And, you know, on it goes, and he goes from room to room, and all the things happen. Like, he has sex, and he shoots a guy, and he's dead. And I guess maybe part of it is that Roger Moore has got this incredibly, like, just unflappable to the to the point of, like, <laughs> just not total nihilism. Like, he doesn't yeah, care or react awesome. to anything. He doesn't care about anything. He's great. Like, I was thoroughly enjoying him. So he's very exploded. funny. I don't mind. Never mind. Whatever. There we go. What I do like about it is that it's obviously a reaction to the success of Star Wars. And the Bond franchise does sort of, has almost like a cultural documentarian function where it's just like, what was the most successful action movie two years before this was made? Yeah, yeah. It is now that. Uh, and it's like, Star Wars, Star Wars is a pretty hit. big hit. Better go Mr. to space Brockley, now. Better send Bond to space. All the kids like space now. So I'll be in space. That was rather good. Well... I enjoyed watching them. I'd watch a few more, but I would have to be watching them while drinking beer. I'd have to be quite drunk. I'd be quite drunk. Well, we should watch Live and Let Die. That's a good one. Let's see. Let's do that. We'll watch a couple more and then report back to you guys. Yeah, watch, watch one of the most racist ones. See how that goes down. Okay. It's very racist, but that's okay. <laughs> it was the 70s. 
Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. Harmony Kareen, he's an interesting fella, a director. And yeah, I haven't made... seen any of his movies, but I'm aware that he's interesting. Philistine. Well, in the 90s, as a young 20-something, he made a big splash. He wrote the Larry Clark movie Kids, and then he made his debut film Gummo, which was very well-received. Then he made the less well-received, but also worth watching Julian Donkey Boy, which is the the first or only American Dogma 95 movie. And then he made a series of weird cult movies, and sort of which were less well-received, and then made a big comeback with Spring Breakers a few years ago. And everyone thought Kareem's got his mojo back. Yeah. Uh, and he hasn't made a film since. But that's about to change because he has locked in a deal with Neon and Vice. Uh, Vice, the cool hipstery YouTube channel slash magazine turned film producers, um, are going to make his new film called The Beach Bum, uh, which will star Matthew McConaughey and is apparently a irreverent comedy that follows the misadventures of Moondog, played by McConaughey, a rebellious and lovable rogue who lives life large. Live life large. Live life large. Uh, I think that was a Justin Bieber tweet. Um, yeah, so we know very little about it. It sounds very much in McConaughey's wheelhouse. I'm pretty sure he's playing this role whenever he's not in another film. Isn't is it? He is a lovable rogue who lives life large, isn't he? Well, like he famously kind of goes to seed between movies. Yeah. Like he just sort of like grows a beard and gets drunk and plays the bongos and smokes weed. And yeah. Then, well, like, that's they... obviously what he's happy. To... Now he's just gonna like, start filming when he does that. Yeah, sits down like, his beach. I, I don't even stirring a big pot of gumbo, <laughs> and looking down, just saying his wise words. You know, the thing is though, is the reconnaissance over? Because he's had he's come off a string of badly reviewed movies. Well, was... what about the uh, his um, rebel film? Uh, the name which escapes me. Free State of Jones. Was that really badly received, well, or did got... no one just go to see it? Yeah, mixed the lukewarm. His. Gus Van Zandt movie Sea of Trees I don't think ever got a release over here it was so poorly received yeah and, just got um, released just, just into the woods it was just let go just, let just go like, into the trees it was just like just, off you go just, just be free be free don't be chained to cinemas it's too cruel and um, his sort of like co-written co-produced movie Gold got oh yeah slated by the critics and apparently it was an example of a real sort of ego driven project oh really and McConaughey's got a bit too big for his boots hmm the reconnaissance um, just became too, you know, it ate itself. Yeah. Yeah. But was there a second became renaissance? Became decadent. Um, <laughs> what happened after the renaissance? Maybe we're entering McCodernism. McCodernism. Or <laughs> yes, post, McCodern- post-McCodernism. Post-McCodernism. But yeah, I would be excited for this. I like, I would be excited for this. If I was you, I would start to be excited about this. <laughs> I, like, I like Harmony Kareen. I mean, sometimes it gets a bit tedious, but it, when he's on form, he has this interesting mix of sort of Nihilism and hedonism, which makes for compelling dramas. I love it. That's why I love the TV show Skins. It's like, yeah, it is very um, Skins-esque, actually. Sort of gummo and uh, some of his early stuff. Well, I'm probably, it's very, probably it's very Vice. The fact that Vice are producing it. That seems quite appropriate. Yeah, because they're such hipsters. But I was looking up their newly established film channel, and they produced All This Panic, which was very good, and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Oh, cool. I say produce, I think they just find like, you know, a bit like the YouTube is like, this is some weird shit. I got to produce this. Yeah. You know, but no one else is producing it. So fair, fair play to them. Fair play to Vice. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think the, the, the main thing that excites me about this project is how McConaughey it is. The fact that his character is called Moondog. Sounds like, Moondog. Sounds, sounds like he named him himself. 
I'm just living life large. Leave me alone. Get away from my beach. <laughs> I'm the only bum here. I don't know. I'm doing, doing what I can with this Maybe material. I should take my shirt off. <laughs> it's hot on the beach. <laughs> Getting hot on my shirt. Don't do this to Uh, I hope he strips in it. Yeah. I want there to be a scene where he's in terrible shape because he's a bum and he gets his bum out. And that's yeah. why it's called the beach bum. He's, he does it's a, not does a nice bum. It's like all flabby. It's not a good bum. hairy. Yeah. He like, took special oh. effort to make sure his bum is and like more out of shape than the rest of it. <laughs> it's all hairy and flabby and, you know, pockmarks and grotesque. It's got little bits of poo hanging off it. <laughs> and it's like lint and it's just sandy because he's on the beach. <laughs> it's just not good, and he does a little like sexy dance. Uh, That's impressing it's nobody. The <laughs> That's the centerpiece of the film. No one's impressed. All the other people on the beach. It's like you know, twelve uh, a.m. on a Saturday. The rest of the beach, not impressed. <laughs> it's it's going to be an it's going to be an iconic scene. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. More franchise news. It's fun to talk about franchises because you get to talk about more than film at once. You can talk about an entire marketing scheme. So, The Mummy is about to come out, starring Tom Cruise. He's got, a, he's got a fight a mummy. He seems to be undead. For, for all I can tell from the trailer, he dies, and then he's like comes back to life. And then he's got to fight The Mummy. So that movie is on the way. And Universal is letting us know a little bit more about the shared universe which The Mummy is going to be launching. And they've given it a name. It's going to be called The Dark Universe. Whoa. Whoa. Pretty spooky. So they got a bunch of monster films coming up, which are presumably going to tie into The Mummy in some way. And it's, I guess, uh, if The Mummy's had anything to go by, it's going to be like updated modern set versions of some of the uh, classic Gothic literature that you're familiar with. So Bill Condon, who most recently made the final Twilight Breaking Dawn films, right? Or has he done some work since he then? He made uh, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Okay, and he's going to direct the new version of The Bride of Frankenstein. And there are some other movies on the way as well. Javier Bardem is going to play Frankenstein's monster. I guess that's going to be in The Bride of Frankenstein. And Johnny Depp is going to be the Invisible Man, although it's not clear. I don't know if the movies themselves, uh, like which movies are, you know, have been announced, like whether he's going to get his own movie or whether he's going to appear in some other movie. Because Russell Crowe is playing uh, Jekyll and presumably also Mr. Hyde, but he is in The Mummy. So I don't know if they're going to get their own movie yet. This is what Condon had to say about The Bride of Frankenstein. He says, I'm very excited to bring a new Bride of Frankenstein to life on the screen, particularly since James Whale's original creation is still so potent. The Bride of Frankenstein remains the most iconic female monster in film history, and that's a testament to Whale's masterpiece, which endures as one of the greatest movies ever made. So it doesn't really say much, does it? I've been... uh, Someone has asked me to make this film, and I'm determined to make a good film. Not a bad one. Um, I'll do that. So, yeah, I mean... It kind of just sounds to me a bit like another studio desperately hunting for the next big thing and sure, betting, yeah. you know, kind of uh, putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Before even the first movie has come out, they're like, welcome to the next six films with all your favorite movie stars. Um, yeah. 
And the other thing that's notable about it, uh, which uh, you mentioned before, is that all the people who are tied into this new thing are kind of old. Yeah, I looked up the ages. Do you want to know the ages? Yeah, please do. So Tom Cruise is 54. Johnny Depp is 53. Javier Bardem is 48. Russell Crowe is 53. And Sophia Botella, who's playing the mummy, is 35. Even the young woman isn't that young. Isn't super duper young. They've got a combined age of 247. I'm not sure how much the combined age tells us. <laughs> but uh, if they were one guy... <laughs> they'd be long dead yeah but it seems like they're betting their money on getting star power but i don't think star power counts for much these, these days these guys are about to fucking retire i mean how many movies do you want to make with them in your shared universe well the thing with tom cruise like the mummy just looks like every other tom cruise movie that he's made recently it looks like a fucking mission impossible film with more special effects basically. well the thing is the mission impossible movies have done well but the jack reacher movies both underperformed and i think the best film he's made recently was edge of tomorrow and that tanked so the Tom Cruise star vehicle, you know, it's not the nice anymore, Tom. It's not going to work out. And well, Johnny... th- that's a change in model generally, I think. They're like yeah, yeah. big marquee names don't sell movies the way they used to. And Johnny Depp seems somebody who's becoming increasingly less bankable. Very unbankable. Do you think they cast him as the Invisible Man because... They didn't really want him to be in it. <laughs> His name has a bit of cachet, but he's so unreliable. such a liability. They can just get a team of puppeteers to like do all the stuff and he can just come on and dub the lines on later. I, if he feels like something's gone wrong in whatever kind of pseudo meritocracy should be operating in Hollywood, you know? Yeah. He's had a scandal, like a domestic violence scandal. He hasn't made a good film, but I think he hasn't made any good fucking films in so long. And no one even has good stuff. It's not like he makes a good film and people are like, well, at least Johnny Depp, like, no one gives a shit. The only film that he's made that got any praise at all recently was Black Mass. And other than that, it's just been. You gotta do some crime. You gotta do some crime. You gotta learn. What are you, eight years old? <laughs> Here's some crime lessons. Punch a guy in the nuts. But Johnny, he's, he's one years old. He gotta learn something. He's gotta learn something. I don't care if he's one year old. Have a club and a gun. Help me do crimes. Something, uh, something that did occur to me because they released this weird teaser promotional trailer to accompany this news item, which was clips of all the classic versions of these stories. And Johnny Depp in his personal life already looks like the Invisible Man, like just sunglasses, scarves. That's like, true. Yeah, very he's... little flesh on show. Yeah, he can bring all his own scarves. Uh, to I mean, that maybe that's why he took the role. Like, I might wear some scarves, uh, <laughs> some sunglasses, <laughs> like, maybe a hat. Myself. Oh, amazing. Yeah, that's true. He likes wearing loads of clothes, and that's perfect for the Invisible Man. So I don't know. I mean, watching the trailer, I was like, I'm certainly not sure if this is going to be any good. It looks a little bit too Suicide Squaddy for my taste. I thought it was like a commentary on Tom Cruise's rejection of his old age. You can't kill me. Even when he's dead, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back and wearing, not wearing a shirt. I still got it. You can't catch me, age. You can't catch me, rumors of my sexuality. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass-clenchingly poor? How did Danny form the judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. After the Storm, this is the new film by Hirokazu Corrida, who previously wrote and directed Our Little Sister, which he reviewed last year, I believe. Yes, I did. And the other acclaimed film, I Wish. He seems to be cornering the market in Japanese humanist family tales with little moments. Lovely little moments. Lovely little moments. So the plot of this one, it's about a middle-aged novelist called Kyoto, whose debut novel 15 years ago was a big success and got many awards, but he hasn't written anything since. And he now works as a private investigator, telling everybody that he's researching 
material for his new novel, but everyone is like, you're obviously just in a rut. And what little money he earns from that job, he spends gambling at the racetracks, and he's generally just a bit of a loser. His ex-wife, Kyoko, is fed up with him, as he's always behind all his payments for child support for their kid, Shingo. And the film is in two halves. The first half is about his life and his monthly time with his son. And in the second half, Kyoko comes to pick Shingo up from Kyoto's grand's house, but the storm of the title is brewing and the estranged family are forced to spend the night together until after the storm. <laughs> uh, it's all in Japanese, so I can't play you a clip because most of our audience is in Japanese, as far as I know. So just imagine people talking in Japanese. And I'll pause for requisite amount of time. <laughs> Can you imagine that? So... This is a very gentle, realist, humanist drama, which is never trying to peak your emotional register above like a six or a seven, but it's very good at what it does and very quietly affecting. And it does a really good job of blending quite familiar story ideas and what could in lesser hands be quite stock characters in a way that seems completely authentic. And the whole narrative device of the estranged family forced to spend time together due to external forces is quite a you could say over familiar one but it is executed with such sort of pinpoint authenticity that it's really winning and it's a very slight movie and the sad bits are a little bit sad and the funny bits will maybe listen a chuckle yeah. litter, maybe maybe a chuckle never a chortle <laughs> um but there are some generally funny bits but he's such a sort of pathetic character that on one hand it is tragic on the other hand it is quite amusing like he's this terrible private investigator and when he discovers somebody is cheating on uh, their husband he then goes and blackmails them to say i won't <laughs> reveal your secrets if you give me money and the private investigator plot line is quite a fun one because it allows him to dip into these other stories and it's all about this guy who's stuck in the past you know his heights were 15 years ago and the performances and the writing do a really good job of giving a lot of dramatic weight to things, especially Kyoto, who's played by this guy called Abe Kurosimi, who is amazing. I've never seen him before. I looked him up. Apparently, he's a big star in Japan, but I'm such an ignoramus. I didn't know this. He's this very handsome, tall guy, but he imbues his entire... It's a very physical performance. He's constantly stooped, constantly a sort of hangdog expression on his face. And you kind of see him fuck up in the movie a lot and then his interactions with the other characters are very revealing because they've obviously seen him fuck up so many times that they're kind of just bored of him and it's very insightful about what seems to be a very male thing about middle age where men can't really deal with getting older or deal with it less well than women it seems i don't know if that's just a bit of sort of received wisdom that might be bullshit but there's definitely a lot of examples of that and this movie is one of them and there's a great bit where his mother is like, why can't men just live in the present? Which is sort of the theme of the movie. And it's a very emotionally complex film and doesn't have any villains or oppressive forces. And it kind of makes the point that people are their own worst enemies. And even if you can see the route to happiness, doesn't necessarily mean you can achieve it. Which is quite a nuanced, pleasingly nuanced take on things. And it's quite interesting to watch because there's a question to whether the film is deliberately subverting your expectations of what's going to happen or whether the story is just unfolding in a very truthful way but you just have a certain amount of baggage going in. So things don't necessarily unfold how you expect they will which makes it quite engrossing. But I don't know if he's some master manipulator or he's just so committed to the truth that 
you know the family might probably won't end up back together because that's not what happens in real life you know one storm is not going to solve many many years of arguments and yeah to finish my review i have a very incredibly cliched and hackneyed metaphor good oh Brace good yourself. thank you very much yeah because a lot of the movie has, it's like a, an onion and there's loads of la- there's loads of layers to well, it. Well, there's a lot of uh, scenes about around food in the movie, a lot of eating and like dining in the movie. I don't think that's like, just part of Japanese culture, which is uh, that's a thing that happens in Japanese movies. I've noticed. Yeah, the ones I've watched. Well, yeah, there's a lot of eating in Our Little Sister as well. And the grandma character is always cooking these stews, and like this stew, the film is made up of simple ingredients, but nourishing when combined <laughs> and cooked slowly. Yeah. These ingredients can produce interesting and new flavors that alone they don't have. And that emotionally is what After Storm is. That was good. Give me the Pulitzer now. That was a great peroration to that review. Really, really clinched it, brought it all home in a very satisfying manner. Yes. So well worth a watch. You have to be in the right mood for it. It is a slow burn of a movie, but it's uh, so beautifully executed. Yeah. That it fully repays the time you give it. A lot of that review sound very familiar, to be honest, from our little sister. Yeah, I should Another have gentle but your touching, touching movie. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. All right, see, so my life is a courgette. Big, big stuff, big film. My name is courgette. This is an animated movie, uh, French and Swiss produced, directed by someone called Claude Barras. Um, it's based on a book by uh, someone called Gilles Paris, or Paris, and written by, among others, Céline Siama, who's the writer-director of Girlhood, and an upcoming French director in her own right. It's about a little boy who's called Icar, but is nicknamed Courgette by his mother, and at the beginning of the movie, a tragic accident uh, strikes his home and he ends up in an orphanage with a bunch of other kids. And the movie kind of follows him adjusting to his new life in the orphanage and getting to know the other children and, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, it's really short. It's only 66 minutes long. One of the shortest movies you're going to find minutes. out there. And it's brilliant. I uh, went to see it yesterday and I just absolutely loved it. It kind of ticked all of the boxes for me. The thing that I love so so much about it is that it is completely fearless about dealing with basically the worst things that can happen in life, like very, very extreme events. And it faces up to them, and yet they don't overwhelm the movie, uh, and it doesn't feel like it's being glib to still have this relatively kind of positive and kindly outlook. And it just feels like this very sophisticated, nuanced take on serious grown-up events which is delivered in this sort of disarmingly simple way that is very emotionally direct. Yeah. And it's almost like how you would want to communicate to children about serious things. And there's like little things in the movie, like uh, a lot of the, the kids talk about sex in the movie, for example. And that, that, is, that in, in and of itself is very disarming, but also not something that I've really seen in a children's film before. And it left me kind of wondering, what even is the audience for this film? Because it is so unafraid of tackling these big themes that 
it almost seems like it's made for adults, but everything else about it is the, you know, the charming, lighthearted world of a kid's movie. And obviously you could take it, you, well, I certainly would happily take a child to see it. I mean, it's a PG and like, I'm sure kids would love it, but it just is, feels like the entire movie is made from this incredibly, basically unpatronizing view of the sort of things that children can deal with. Yeah. And that's incredibly admirable since that the subject matter of the movie is kids dealing with things. And it's like this recognition that, you know, life happens to children as well. Yeah, I, I kind of, I don't know if this is the best comparison, but it's like akin to something like Roald Dahl, where like he never talks down to his audience and very sort of matter of fact. Yeah, I think that is a good uh, comparison. Way of dealing with stuff. And it's like remarkable how that doesn't jar with the visual style of the movie. Which is which, very picture book. It's very like colorful yeah, and bright like, and um, lovely these, stop motion animation. Exactly, like huge expressive eyes and, uh, you know, people aren't proportioned the way they are in real life. They look like little dolls, basically. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it really got me. Uh, really got me. It's got this like gentle pace and every scene is so full of human warmth and there's not like a huge amount of plot obviously because the movie is so short but it was a film where not every scene is like uh driving the plot forwards in a really direct way and i was never bothered basically either <laughs> way like um there was always something so it was very very captivating friend of film chat james andrews was going to join us today but uh due to various miscommunications he is not here but he did send uh, his comments on oh, my life is a courgette he said, I like the way all the tragic stuff just kind of happens in a very matter-of-fact way, and there's no wallowing or ever really exploring how awful his situation really is. Which I think is more poignant because it's how I imagine a child might process such a thing. He says that he thought it was similar to Moonlight in that way, in the first, uh, the first act of Moonlight. I also liked how ridiculously loving everyone at the foster home was. I feel like the institution is usually positioned as being an enemy and all horrible in that kind of film. Um, and since I work for it, it's nice to see that it was run by love in this case. I also like the gaunt style of the characters. They look like either alcoholics or they're having terrible allergic reactions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that's a really good point because it's true that that you often see in these kinds of movies, it'll be like a kid against the world kind of thing. And, but everyone at the uh, orphanage that he ends up in is just uh, very kindly. He's got these kind of like teachers and people look after him. And the woman who runs the orphanage is really nice. And there's like one villainous character in the movie, but she's quite peripheral. Yeah. And basically yeah. is only in it to drive a little bit of plot, but it's never like that big of a deal. That's the thing I found the most emotionally affecting, just like nice people being nice. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, exactly. These kids have been through a lot. Like, thank God they're, they're here. They're safe. These people are lovely. Well, that's, it almost is like, it was almost like the movie felt like, as long as you can get past the premise of the movie, then you don't need to worry. Exactly. Yeah. It's like it puts you through the ringer in like the first five minutes of the film, and you're like, "Oh my god!" And then after that, <laughs> it's like, yeah, "Now you don't need to worry too much." Like people will just, you know, bond and they'll be nice to each other. Um, and it does all that really well. Like all the kids, like I don't know if, if they're adults doing the voices for the children or if they're actual children, but they are uh, really brilliantly performed and very, very cleverly written. I think uh, in a way that sounds authentically childlike but is also not just you know meaningless babble it's all very like carefully done and i just found it like a sweet and lovely film and and very poignant yeah we both saw the subtitle version which i would if you can find that version i would seek it out because i haven't seen the dub version but the adorability is just reinforced by the adorable french accents and my name is courgette 
is far more endearing than my name is Courgette. And my America, name is Zucchini. And in America, yes, my name is Zucchini. It's like That's not as cool sounding. My name's Zucchini. I'm Zucchini. Call me Zucchini. I'm ten years old. Um Yeah, you don't want you don't want any of that. You don't want the version where Al Pacino does the voice of the kid, which I believe he does in the American dub. Okay. What's going on there? I know footage. Hoo-ah. Yeah, exactly. That'd be absolutely rubbish. That'd be pants. Uh, yeah, I I, th- I I highly recommend uh, anyone to go check it out. It's very exciting seeing a film that's so short as well. You can do stuff the rest of your evening, you know? It's only yeah. an hour long. Even with the ads, you come out and it's like, you know, do something else. Mainly process what a lovely film that you can see. <laughs> Mainly go shout from the rafters. Just shout, shout from the rooftops uh, and, and tell everyone else to go see it. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end. So a movie that's shooting at the moment is Jurassic World 2, the first Jurassic World, which we reviewed on a previous episode of Film Shout. Go back to our archive, it's all available. It's all available, it's all available. On, on acast.com slash film hyphen chat. Absolutely. So they're filming this new one. It's directed by J.A. Bayona, who is quite a starry director to pick. He had a big hit with The Impossible a few years ago and A Monster Calls this year. And exciting news for fans of the Jurassic Park franchise is that Jeff Goldblum is returning to the franchise as Dr. Ian Malcolm, that guy who doesn't think dinosaurs should be around and yep. yet keeps on encountering them. He must be one of the most frustrated men in the world. He's very like, frustrated. I, I've warned you about this stuff for decades now. Didn't you see the first movie? I said, don't make them. And you keep on making them. And uh, he is joining returning cast members Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. And he recently spoke about filming. He said, off I go in a few weeks to London, where they've been hard at work. This is my Jeff Goldblum impression, by the way. It's very good. And I'll try to you. I, I try try and do a Jeff Goldblum. Well, it's up to you. And you can. And I'll try. It's mainly the hands. I'll try to contribute something to the plate of the Dino Entertainment. I like my character. I think my character is a saucy, sassy man of some integrity and deep thinking. And of course, that whole world continues to be popular. Slam bang top entertainment. I talked to the director J. A. Bayona over the phone. I enjoyed his movie The Impossible with Naomi Watts, and he's something else. Very fluent man, isn't he? Well, the thing is, he was outraged by. Jurassic Park. So in the unit, horrified. So when he's like, wait a second, you built an entire Jurassic World and you kept on making new, different dinosaurs. Yeah, he must be blowing his fuse. The first shot of the movie is just going to be him doing a Home Alone esque kind of scream into a mirror, just as soon as he hears about Jurassic World, because he's so disgusted. I've got a good idea for how the sequel should work. Oh, good. Yes, please do tell me. So it uh, starts off, and it's like, welcome to. Jurassic World, you know, it's like the gates, it opens, yeah, and you see signs up, pens, and you like, you know, see the gift shops, it's all from like long lens shots, and then you see, you know, a cage, mm-hmm. and it like pans through the cage, and you see people moving around in the grass, and it's getting, you know, closer and closer to the camera, and then it's just a guy, and it pans over, and the security guard is a dinosaur. It's gone like full Planet of the Apes. It's a Jurassic World. The dinosaurs have taken over. Oh, shit. Because at kind of the end of uh, Jurassic World, the T-Rex is king of the world. He's yeah. he's running the show. So I've, And then it says flashback two weeks previously. Two hours previously. <laughs> two hours. 20 minutes previously. <laughs> and it's the beginning. Is... So wait, the dinosaurs in that is in a uniform? Yeah. It's wearing clothes? Uniform. And you can speak. Raptor. And it can speak. It can speak. 
And he speaks yeah. in a very posh British Welcome. Accent. Welcome to... Mm. These are lovely good, to see good humans. He'd be mm. good at doing the quotation marks. He's really good. <laughs> he just does it very no- good. Normally. Yeah. Very good at his kind of sarcastic scare quotes. Well, that's the only way you can go, right? Yeah. Uh, they also... I want there to be a bit where he gets injured and then he just isn't in the film anymore except for cutting back to shots of him reclining on a uh, kind of a slab and just looking kind of hot. He is a slab himself of yeah. sex meat and he's on he's on a like recuperation slab. <laughs> One slab of sex meat is that goblin. <laughs> he is. Well, he's still got it. You know, he's still sexy. Oh, you know what I would like, actually? When he turns up, he just starts flirting with Bryce as Howard shamelessly. Oh, man, that would be so down. good. And then he steals her. I want to uh, see him cuck. I want to see him cuck Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, it's cucks. <laughs> Pratt gets cut. Like, Chris Pratt goes through hell to rescue her because I assume she'll be objectified. Yeah, then she still, distress. she goes off with Goblin. Like, oh, I'm going to go with Goblin. Yeah, thanks. Cheers. Like, I really appreciate I really it. Appreciate I respect you a lot. It's blood and mud and, like dinosaur scratch marks he's like i'm still gonna go with malcolm they get in the helicopter and he's like yeah by this point in the movie he's like horribly scarred from the injuries inflicted upon him by dinosaurs he's only got one arm and he's almost unrecognizable because he's you know so brutally and horrifically injured um and she still is like no just go with this guy he's much cooler than you knows about knows a lot about chaos theory he has respect for science unlike you raptor whisperer unlike you you fucking jock piss off you have no personality you were incredibly mean to me in the entirety of the first film and i've discovered some self-respect and now i'm disgusted by you go away i also hope that her um nephews get in danger again and judy greer calls her again to cry at her that would be fantastic i just love my kids so much i've just thought of it i've just thought of an alternative beginning all right this will be i'll end the podcast with this this is very similar the uh, it opens with the gates. The gates are opening. Slow pan in. Both of our versions start very, very slow sure. pans. So it takes like about 20 minutes just to get where you're going. Yeah. So slowly, slowly panning in. And we go across the uh, you know the prairies, all the dinosaurs like uh, gambling about. And then uh, we get to the um, you know the aquarium, Sea World a bit. Uh, and then we slowly kind of uh, the camera lifts a little bit over the fence. You know, goes into the water. And then we sort of dive under the waves dinosaurs swinging around then it's that giant megalodon uh, from the end jurassic world and uh, we swim right up to its mouth and its mouth opens and you see that it's being propped open with like a stick and the uh, woman the nanny the stupid uh, haughty british nanny who was eaten by the dinosaur in the yes. end of Jurassic World. She's she fine. emerges and she's fine <laughs> she's just holding her breath she's never looked better she's never <laughs> she actually looks great radiant (laughs) skin is glowing she looks comfortable she just looks like she's in her element which is which happens to be water and she swims (laughs) out of the out of the mouth of the megalodon and emerges like a mermaid uh from the water climbs over the fence uh, just brushes herself off uh some awesome rap music kicks in (laughs) (laughs) just totally badass rapper's delight kicks in kicks in (laughs) <laughs> the credit sequence happens. The credit sequence is just pictures of her, just like <laughs> all of the uh, the cast members and stuff, all just illustrated with pictures of her looking really delighted, carrying her stick. Um, she the- carries that stick the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows where she got it from. That's the secret that's revealed in Act yeah, Three. She keeps turning like ever a wig gig, and that's the that's like she's the linchpin of the movie. That's the direction it comes from. Good. Thanks. I'm, I'm receiving. I'm receiving applause. 
Thanks so much for listening. Next week, join us. We'll be reviewing... Probably Wonder Woman, Wonder right? Woman. Yeah. A woman film? What? A woman? Wonder? Wonder? A wonder-associated woman? I wonder if a film can have a woman in it. Yeah, so we'll find out if a film can have a woman in it next week when we review Wonder Woman. Remember to like us on the various platforms that we're on. Yeah, leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us a review on iTunes since we've moved, we've moved, right? So we yeah, need we lost to, all those good reviews. We lost all the good reviews. So please do go back and leave us reviews. Um, spread the word, and we'll, and we'll catch you next week. Okay. 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 Bye now. Okay. All right. See you later. Okay. Bye. Bottom line is you're never going to make a film to fucking please anybody. You know what? You, you talk to people these days about, uh, you, you talk to sort of 18 year olds about the Godfather and they go, fucking hell, the bollocks. It takes about three hours yeah. to get going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. don't like it. You know, what, what this film's certainly sort of got is all the like, sort of film geeks and that really like it. Do you know what I mean? It's a, mm. it's a different sort of, because it's more, you see, the problem is, is people have to think when they're watching it. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you've got to follow the stories and you've got to sort of just go with it and everything. And people, people, uh, people struggle to do that. You, you know saying, do you think they're not used to that with our sort of films? Yeah, I think they, you know, they're used to you narrating it and yeah. telling the story yeah. and, and that. You know what I mean? cunt on about 12 yeah. points and still get it. Yeah, the handheld and the sort of different shutter speeds on the camera and that. Mm. People get fucking, they get well, It's unsettling, isn't it? It's fucking. And especially if you've had 10 points. Obviously, you know some, I mean? saying, some geezers are saying, like, fucking, I don't know, you, you, you got after you've had your popcorn, use your popcorn bag as a sick bag or something because you're going to throw up because the camera works so shaky. I'll oh, say, so get your fucking eyes tested, mate. Yeah, I'll you know. tell you something. I'll fucking tell you something, right? That Mr. Bean 2, that took six million quid on its opening weekend. Yeah, yeah. No, and the point. thing is, people want to go to the cinema these days. They just don't want to think. 